the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. This week, it's a special edition of the podcast, produced in association with Lloyd's Register and the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative. We're talking about ship recycling. Specifically, I want to look at how we drive positive change in ship recycling and move this conversation on beyond the finger-pointing politics that I fear has dominated the ship recycling debate in shipping for many years. Progress has been made, but there is much more that is still required, and we have an opportunity right now to accelerate progress towards a truly sustainable industry. This is a conversation that requires the input of many stakeholders. So this edition of the podcast is about reflecting some of those views. We're talking about how data reporting and transparency are increasingly playing a role in driving change. We're talking about the shifting dynamics of ESG requirements in financing and the emergence of the circular economy. And we're talking about the need for collaboration beyond shipping, involving a a much wider cast of stakeholders prepared to lead. My panel of esteemed experts today are... Andrew Stevens, Executive Director at the Sustainable Shipping Initiative and the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative. Jennifer Riley-James, the Senior Ship Recycling Specialist at Lloyd's Register. Roger Charles, Executive Director, Environmental and Social Risk Management at Standard Chartered Bank. And Christina Kuniganis, Sustainability Manager at Norden. I want to start this discussion off by asking you each a pretty simple question. We know what sustainable recycling looks like. So the question is, how do we get the rest of the industry to follow? And how optimistic are you that sustainable recycling will be the industry standard within the next, say, five years? Andrew, I'm going to come to you first to get us started. Give us some optimism. Tell us what you think sustainable recycling looks like and how do we get there? Right. I'll try my best. When you you say we know what sustainable uh, ship recycling looks like we we probably actually don't really know this and i say that because probably across the industry there is no alignment or agreement on actually what is responsible or sustainable for the srti ship recycling transparency initiative this is an initiative which is method agnostic and we believe that key aspect in driving responsible and sustainable ship recycling is transparency of data And by being transparent about this data, which includes ship recycling policies, practices, the companies engaged will allow themselves to be held to account by stakeholders. Jennifer, I want to come to you next with the same question. I suggest we do have at least some idea of what best practice looks like. And as Andrew says, perhaps we don't have the full picture, but we certainly have a goal in mind. So give us your view. What do we need to do here? Give us the the broad opening. Uh, Yeah, hi. So I think from perspective of um, the changes that we're starting to see happening in Southeast Asia, where beaching methodologies have traditionally been used, we're starting to see change happening in that industry slowly, where new and novel kind of methodologies and techniques are being trialled to improve the way that health, safety, environmental issues are seen and to improve the conditions in those yards. But it's a learning process whereby those ship recyclers are kind of by trial and error working to improve their industry. Okay, okay. 
Roger, you're coming at this from the financial perspective, and we're going to get into the weeds of you know, how that really can drive some change, I think. But start us off with a view of how optimistic you are. I think um, given the huge volume of shipping activity and the direct impacts that we know, the shipping industry has become the focus of many financial institutions uh, for many different reasons. I think primarily it was around reputational risk. And I think that is the legacy of, uh, of ship recycling, of where banks started to develop their um, ESG policies of what they would and wouldn't finance and conditions for financing in the past. Um, I think today we're, we're seeing a shift in that view of where it's uh, rather than holding the stick where we're trying to dangle the carrot and look at uh, a company's um, you know, ESG activities or their performance as a whole and, and where does ship recycling fall within that. Um, and that's through, as Andrew mentioned, through data and transparency. So I guess the, the missing gap really in, in terms of any of these initiatives is around data. And currently, although data is starting to be generated from the ground up uh, and again, driven by maybe climate change and, and um, emissions reporting. Now that is starting to widen and we are now bringing in other aspects such as human rights and end of life of vessels. Um, and, and as such, once we're starting to build on this information, it informs investors on their own internal decision-making process. Um, and so we can only see as data starts to develop and it will then strengthen investors' standpoint in terms of how they want to see the industry moving and, and the influence they'll have. So as we get more information, as we get more data, I see that this whole process will start to gather more and more momentum. Excellent. We're going to absolutely explore some of that that data aspects and the, the transparency required in order to drive that. But before we do, Christina, you're in the rather enviable position of being the uh, representative of the uh, the ship-owning stakeholder community within this debate. Traditionally, a difficult place to be in, but Norton itself hasn't actually recycled a ship in a very long time. So you're very much representing in this debate the uh, the, the sustainability curious, the, uh, the, uh, the, the ship owner that wants to know how to do better and to uh, look at the, the practices involved. Start us off with just a few thoughts in terms of, to you, what sustainable recycling looks like and, and how optimistic you are that it really can be implemented over the next few years by, by the industry. Thanks. I actually would just uh, catch on to the data aspect that's key in this process in the sense that you can't really fix something that you don't have, you, you don't know what looks like. So data and transparency is obviously the way to go. Also, in addition, the bar for we see now for what is commonplace sustainability is going up. Um, and this is for all sectors. And and I am actually quite optimistic in the sense that uh, transparency initiatives and market forces hand in hand with regulation will actually push for for increased sustainability in the very end. So I would say it, we're not there uh, now, but uh, but optimism is is definitely my point of view. Mm. Good. Okay. So we have our stakeholders. We have the ship owner. We have the sustainable. Uh, campaigners who are trying to join the dots. We have the the finance community represented, and of course we have class, so integral to most of the discussions within shipping right now. 
the point being here that this is down to no specific sector. This is not a ship owner problem. This is not a finance problem. This is a an issue that requires collaboration, not just across shipping, but beyond uh, the regulatory sphere into finance and, uh, and many other stakeholders apart from that. Andrew, I'm going to come back to you with a, with a slightly broader question because obviously the Sustainable Shipping Initiative is not just looking at ship recycling, but the way I see it from many other debates from decarbonization and digitalization, the big tectonic shifts within shipping, now has really been a, never a better time to push ahead with some of uh, the big problems of shipping, simply because we have so many spinning plates within the industry. We have obviously the recent impact of the coronavirus tearing down much of what we know as the normal. Um, but beyond that, we have to find new fuel. We have to find uh, new ways of uh, operating companies. And of course, the shifting demand patterns across that. All of that feeds into this recycling debate because it offers an opportune time to start doing things differently. How would you think about this? Do you, do you think this is a good opportunity to rip up the old rule book and, and start fresh? Do you get the impression that there is a gaining momentum within the industry to do things differently right now? Yeah, I think this is a, an opportune moment, um, as Roger was also describing, that the, the sort of forces around the ship owners and operators is is very present. This is driven by external pressures within the sector and outside of the sector. But there's a growing emphasis for the stakeholders involved in the life of a ship to take responsibility from cradle to grave, meaning all the way back to the, the design stage and through to the end. And, and the scrutiny and desire to hold those involved accountable has been growing. And it's been growing in the absence of regulation, as we mentioned as well. This isn't a new concept. This is perhaps new in terms of spotlight within the ship-owning industry who typically has reacted more to regulatory demands and change than voluntary acceleration of doing the right things right uh, in the maritime sector. So, you know, we're, we're focused on that data and transparency about bringing the clarity, uh, the, the scrutiny, and really focusing on the dynamics that this, what you describe as tectonics, there's sort of push and pull factors that are emerging from cargo owners, from civil society towards the cargo owners in terms of visibility over what practices through the supply chain are actually being adopted and are they responsible, are they sustainable, and what does that mean in the total picture? And, and this does have an impact on, of course, the considerations of business models so we, we, we very much see that uh, drive and, uh, as a push and pull energy within the sector, which probably hasn't been there for, for some time and why shipping has been outside of you know the Paris Agreement, etc. Roger, let's bring you in on that point, because I think the, the push and the pull of finance is really key here. We have a regulatory uh, framework. And Jennifer, I'm going to bring you in on some discussion around the Hong Kong Convention and the European push towards regulation. But before we get to that, the finance community and their willingness to do things differently, 
I think is key to so many of the debates. And we've seen the launch of things like the Poseidon Principle, uh, Get to Zero campaign in the last few years, um, really uh, engaging finance at a level that is encouraging shipping and to some extent twisting their arm in terms of what they will be able to do in the future. But to push them in the direction that capital is really only going to flow in the direction of those companies and individuals that are prepared to do the right thing. Now, defining the right thing is the tricky part, of course, and and how we do that is not by any means an easy pathway. But give us an idea of how this, this carrot and stick approach works, specifically in terms of how you think it can apply to ship recycling. I guess... Um Historically, banks have set out their their minimum requirements or their minimum standards, you know, of what they would and would not finance. And I, I guess that's what we would call, you know, responsible lending, of where we would expect clients to manage environmental and social challenges based on international good practice, and to gain and maintain a social license to operate. Again, that is measured by you know stakeholders and perceptions of the acceptability of that company on the grounds of its performance. And responsible lending was primarily driven by our appetite to mitigate reputational risk. Where standard chartered lie, I mean, we're in a unique position of where we are engaged with ship recycling uh, facilities in Bangladesh, as well as uh, shipping companies. So with that in mind, we've seen a growing with more financial institutions more requirements coming onto the shipping industry as a whole. And as Andrew said, we do not see ship recycling as separate to shipping. We see ship recycling as a part of the shipping value chain. And so with that, we we have now policies as well as all the other banks uh, of where we say that it very much focuses on the requirement for shipping companies to have uh, a ship recycling policy in place. So that was the stick, and that's what we would call, a, in, in a way, a negative screening. It's, it's very binary. You either comply or, or you don't comply, and that would determine whether we would lend. On the positive side, in a way, the carrot, we see ESG investing, which has risen at a very fast pace over the last few years. And essentially, ESG investing is the provision of finance to investments, taking into account environmental, social, and governance considerations. And these are designed to help investors identify and understand material ESG risks associated to a business. So right now, it focuses on companies with best practice operations across their ESG um, performance. Uh, And companies with higher ESG scores tend to be what we would consider of higher quality. They experience lower volatility, more resilience to uh, non-financial factors and market fails. On the flip side of that, the consequences of poor ESG ratings uh, can be significant. For instance, if a shipping company were to receive a poor rating from an ESG data provider, their stock may be impacted uh, or considered as an unsustainable asset by investors. And that could be of not aligning to um, you know, the Paris Agreement through the IMO targets. It could be through poor human rights records or poor safety records. It could also be through not taking in consideration end of life of their vessels. And so if multiple investors follow the same reasoning, this can eventually negatively impact on a shipping price. 
So seeing now that the ESG ratings now is starting to gain much more momentum because of the, the likes of the TCFD, which is for climate-related disclosures. And we're seeing now a more holistic approach being taken, you know, assessment to, to cleaner shipping, which includes non-CO2 emissions, occupational health and safety, uh, and ship recycling. So where we see the impact of all of this, we look at it from a, an increased transparency of data uh, allows companies to to compare to, to their competitors and peers, and this helps promote change internally. Um, and it's an, a powerful incentive for taking action and steps towards increasing performance, as well as highlighting areas of particular weakness and strength. And then the second part of the, the carrot, I guess, is is this growing sustainable finance market activity in shipping. Uh, and given the, the the volume of shipping activity financial institutions have come together to develop sustainable shipping initiatives. And mainly this is coming out of the European market, but we have uh, the European Investment Bank, which announced its green shipping financing program, which provides advantageous terms to, to sustainable projects. We see an increase in the number of green bonds, which has a strong focus on use of proceeds to, to sustainable activities. Uh, we see sustainability link loans, which are aligned to the borrower's overall CSR strategy, target setting and reporting and review. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, we see the Poseidon Principles Framework, which is a signatory for banks to disclose consolidated clients' portfolio emissions data uh, and essentially the bank's financed emissions and where that sits in, in alignment to the Paris Agreement targets and also the internal targets to that bank. I'm right in thinking that when the Poseidon Principles were set up, there was discussion that ship recycling could become part of that framework uh, eventually. Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, I think that, um, again, the non-CO2 emissions and uh, impacts up to this point, it's been, it's been very centric. I guess the finance industry uh, the, you know, has been very fixated on greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and again, that's become you know, driven by the TCFD reporting and also evolving climate policies. However, now we see non-CO2 emissions, and human rights we see as a, as a big driver now, and end of life is going to be prioritised. And the reason why is because going back to the responsible lending, uh, a lot of the financial institutions already have public policies uh, with regards to ship recycling and with regards to uh, human rights. Okay, well... That gives us a good view from the finance in terms of the direction of travel. But Jennifer, I want to bring you in here because the word transparency specifically related to data has been brought up at least a couple of times already. Do you think there is that transparency and the clarity of the definition of terms required within shipping to allow that approach, that financial carrot and stick approach to really take effect when it comes to ship recycling? Um, yeah, so I think that the concept of transparency within ship recycling is something that's actually growing within the industry relatively rapidly if you compare it to perhaps other um, other areas of shipping. And I think the initiatives like the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative, which is encouraging ship owners to disclose data around um, ship recycling, is really beneficial to that. I think the disclosure of data can be a bit of a sensitive subject 
And often data is mandated to be disclosed through a, a top-down kind of regulatory approach. But actually, certainly what we're seeing with the, the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative is a kind of a, a bottom-up voluntary disclosure of data. And actually, in many ways, that kind of um, platform for a voluntary disclosure of data is, is perhaps a bit more beneficial in some ways. Maybe it could be seen as more um a more friendly way, I suppose, of, of encouraging people to say what it is they're doing within ship recycling, what their ship recycling policies are, like Roger mentioned. And hopefully that, that more gentle way of, of asking people to say, you know, what is it that you're doing will we'll start to build more momentum about the disclosure of, of that data. Because I, I think without that level of openness and transparency about what people are doing, whether that's from a ship owner's perspective or potentially as well from a, a ship recycler's perspective, we, we won't see the, the required changes within the industry, which everybody I think is wanting to, to see happen. Well, Christina, that seems a, a good opportunity to bring you in as the, the ship owner voice. As I mentioned at the outset, this is to some extent, I guess, a theoretical question for you in that Norden doesn't and hasn't recycled ships. But the point is, you're looking for what is required. And I guess I'd like your thoughts in terms of where the responsibility of the ship owner lies, regardless of whether you're physically the ones to engage in the end of the ship's life or like Norden, one of the many ship owners that would maintain a, a younger fleet and therefore sell on ships long before they ever become uh, recycling candidates. How does the ship owner take the, the blue chip gold standard here and make sure that you are doing the right thing in the terms of the conversation that we've had so far? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, we haven't recycled a vessel for the last uh, 92 years. But whether or not a ship owner is uh, in the business of recycling, uh, the ship owner, we believe, uh, has a responsibility for the vessel that it's owned because it's been linked through its value chain, as also mentioned earlier. So while our business model is operating a modern fleet, we find it important to express our principles on uh, responsible recycling, even if all the details are not in place yet because we don't have the experience with recycling Keeping these principles, we help raise the bar and join other leaders who uh, together are continuously raising this bar. Uh, and this one place could be via the SRTI platform. And this is also where the level playing field will come into play. And market forces in the end will require owners and other stakeholders to, to become more, more responsible. What we do is we publish our responsible ship recycling policy on our website so customers and the public can hold Norden accountable for what it says in case we, we wouldn't comply. Um, our policy promotes responsible recycling of the own vessels that we sell on uh, based on some criteria. So we include a clause to the buyer that if uh, they sell on the vessel within six months, they have to recycle or make sure that the new buyer will recycle it responsibly if that's the case. And if the buyer himself or herself chooses to recycle within six months, then it has to be done in a, uh, to a certain level of re uh, responsibility. And do you think that's enough? Do you think that is a standard that the whole of the industry could and should be held accountable to? I mean, is it, speaking somewhat cynically, do you think it is something that is in any way enforceable? It seems like a, a, a nice touch, but realistically, is anyone going to adhere to that? 
You're, you're totally right. Um, leverage is decreasing as you uh, sell off the vessel, but at least if we put in clauses that require a minimum of responsible recycling standards, we could hope that the new owners would also do uh, that in in their documents when they sell on, so that you create like a positive wave of responsibility. Mm. Um, Jennifer, I I want to bring you back in here quickly because although I want this, to, as I said, to be a discussion of, of of pragmatic, positive ways forward, I think we have to at least tackle the issues as they are. The Hong Kong Convention was agreed in two thousand nine. Uh, I think it's generally accepted it's unlikely to be coming into force until around 2025 at the earliest and already we have questions being asked about the certification of yards by some of the class societies as standards do appear to uh, fluctuate quite widely you've got the european union's rival recycling regulation which is very much aimed at pushing higher standards that's really had problems finding sufficient yards uh, of the required standard to scrap large numbers of ships and all the while, the existing standards of cash buyers using end-of-life flags with impunity, while the general attitude seems to be that you can't really blame the ship owners for choosing the most cost-effective option, all of which adds up to a status quo that is less than uh, what we would like. This discussion, you know, we've got four people who are very much pushing the blue-chip, gold-plated standard here. How do we get the fragmented middle of shipping to go beyond this and change this situation? Uh, yeah, okay. So I think the, the first thing to start with is that change is happening and it is in part been driven by the EU ship recycling regulation, which has provided this kind of top-down push with absolute deadlines set into the legislative text for ship owners and ship recycling facilities to, to comply with. Um, so, so that's the first point where top push. And I think what we're starting to see in response to that top down push is a bottom up change. But the problem is that old habits essentially die hard and trying to change entire industries essentially overnight is difficult. But also trying to change global perspectives is also a big challenge um, and certainly I think sometimes society can um, kind of get fixated on what's previously happened rather than just kind of looking and le- looking at what's happened and trying to learn and, and work to improve and I think that journey of um, learning and improvement is certainly what everybody on this podcast is is talking about and, and trying to start the ball rolling with. You know, obviously, the traditional industry of beaching, which is where a lot of the focus and the problems around ship recycling um, have historically lay. So traditional beaching with substandard practices really isn't isn't right and shouldn't be kind of condoned and, and promoted. But beaching is an industry that is going to be needed, um, whether that's kind of for good or bad, I suppose. Um, and it won't go away overnight. And I think it's the question lies around what that definition of good or bad beaching is and and I think that goes back to one of the opening points that was made here which is um, we don't necessarily know what the standards of the exact details of the standards are. The EU ship recycling regulation and the the Hong Kong convention both set these top-down standards but it's like I say it's the details that perhaps are missing and what the bottom-up push is trying to kind of clarify 
And I think it really does depend on how the ship recyclers decide they're going to commit to the change, the changes that are going to be needed and um, how they feel that improvements can be made to kind of their ship recycling facilities. And simply kind of just keeping intertidal zones clear of pollution doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that they have to stop beaching altogether, but it means that they're going to have to start using uh, and finding new techniques and looking at how they can invest in infrastructure in, in those sorts of areas. And I think once that investment starts to happen, the hope is that there'll be a kind of a contagious change across the industry where more and more people start to kind of improve their standards. Certification in any part of the industry is always seen essentially as just a spot check. The the certificate issued is valid at that time and date. And obviously, as soon as the certifier goes, obviously, there's no kind of immediate checks happening until the next time they're going to be present. Um, So actually, what the the key to the certification is, the the certification itself is one part, but the, the key to the bigger picture to actually help ensure that change happens and is continued is that there is ongoing um, relationship between the ship recycling facility and the certifier so that there's ongoing checks um, and revisits within that certification period to make sure that the the higher standards are maintained and the the EU ship recycling regulation or the Hong Kong convention whatever's certification has been issued for um, those standards are continue to be met. So, Jennifer, one one thing we need to sort of touch on is this emergence of the term the circular economy, which is probably one of those terms that requires a little bit of explanation. But broadly speaking, we're talking about how we can bed in not just you know the design of the assets, but to really make sure that we are fully recycling aspects of everything to do with shipping and beyond uh, in the lifespan of all these assets. Give us a few thoughts in terms of how that applies to the recycling argument. Yeah, okay. So the design, building um, and operation of a ship can really um, contribute significantly to the the end of life stages of the, the actual ship recycling parts. And what's key is knowing what is actually going on um, or going into a ship in terms of certainly the hazardous materials from the beginning in the ideal scenario, but certainly during the operational life of the ship before it gets to that recycling facility. So for ship owners, the key here to the the circular economy piece is the the compilation and maintenance of the inventory of hazardous materials. And this IHM, Inventory of Hazardous Materials, is is what is at the forefront of most ship owners' minds at the moment. And that's because of the drive from the EU ship recycling regulation, where by the end of this year, any ship owner calling at an EU port will need to have an IHM on board. And actually what what we're seeing is that because of this absolute deadline in the regulation, more ship owners are actually compiling their IHMs because they have to, but they're also employing the services of expert companies to actually undertake sampling and really compile a robust and accurate IHM. And this will mean that when the ship comes to be recycled, the information will be much more useful to the recyclers at at end of life. So the ship owner actions now are contributing to the end of life processes. But I think the big challenge for the ship owners is actually not necessarily going to be the IHM compilation here, but it's going to be the the maintenance of the IHM um, to make sure that the the supply chain is kind of 
geared up to be able to provide the necessary paperwork to the ships. So when parts are being supplied to the ship, they should be supplied with a statement to say whether any of the um, hazardous materials that are required to be identified in, in the legislation are indeed in those parts. And that's not going to be an easy challenge because there are thousands of parts that could potentially be supplied to a ship and they, those parts could all be of different grades and qualities. So it's a, it's going to be a real big job to get the supply chain um, geared up to provide the paperwork, but also from a ship owner's perspective to actually um, ensure that the management of that paperwork can happen throughout the ship's life so that that IHM that was compiled really well at the beginning is actually still accurate at, at the end of a ship's life. And I think the other piece of that is the actual, the way the IHM is going to be used by the ship recycling facilities at the end of life. And, and this ties into the wider discussion that we're having here about the, the fact that there has to be a bottom up change, um, which is in part driven by the top down legislation. And without that bottom up drive and on the ground momentum and understanding about how ship recycling needs to improve, it won't matter if ships are being designed and delivered with better quality, robust IHMs, if the ship recyclers themselves can't actually use it and know how to use that information appropriately. So across the industry throughout the life cycle of a ship, I think education um, and learning is key to make sure that best practice is um, implemented and maintained. And it's not going to be easy to to do that necessarily um, and to change the, the status quo, for, certainly from a ship recycling perspective, but also to educate around the, the IHM piece. But I think that change, like we say, is, is happening. Um, and certainly in, in the ship recycling facilities, we're seeing new generations of, of owners taking over ship recycling facilities and actually breaking breaking down barriers that have been there previously primarily because they can see this valuable economic return to, to invest um, and upgrade and contribute in part to the circular economy approach and, and kind of close the loop. Andrew, I mean, that to me is probably one of the most sort of uh, interesting accounts of the reality of change. It's all very well for you know the likes of us on this podcast to set out the vision of how this should be and uh, you know while we may disagree on some of the details i think it would be fair to say that the speakers on this podcast are all very much heading in the same direction and have a vision of what should happen but we're not talking about an industry-wide change we're talking about a difficult transition that is as much about the uh, on the ground changing of hearts and minds um, on a case-by-case basis as it is setting a broad vision for the industry to follow and and encouraging them through regulation and finance that is a a, a long-term transition how do we how do we do that how do we speed things up and how do we make this a little bit more broad than simply just on an individual basis encouraging people to do the right thing yeah i think that the, the points you raise and, and raised by jenny and christina and, and roger around this um the absence of the global regulation as i mentioned earlier is is a key factor here it's an industry that's driven mostly by regulation but of course even if this came in in 2025 which is a long way off it would then still rely on enforcement which was what jenny was touching on there you know you pass your driving test but you do what you like afterwards unless you're controlled what we see uh, very much is that there's a, a growing momentum, um, as also been commented earlier, about raising the bar 
there very much is a groundswell from the, the bottom up. Those stakeholders that are involved on both the demand side and the supply side forming this what may be called the chorus of the willing, um, where on the supply side in particular is now what I see as a, a, a want and a drive to change, to do things right, to stand what that is, that uh, some believe is right, is sustainable and responsible, and how to bring that about. And it's very difficult to, over time, bring your practices in a ship recycling facility up to that standard that matches market needs. You invest in the resources, the infrastructure, the practices and processes, lots of training. It's very difficult then to tracks and say, well, this is the good way that we do things, um, but we also do it you know, to a lesser degree because that suits some. It doesn't really fit the, the work practice that you're adopting um, in your environment. So we see that groundswell, as Jenny was saying, a bottom-up approach will prevail over time and there is certainly a willingness on those ship recycling facilities that we see where there is a meeting of like-minded philosophy and and willingness to put these things in place and change for the better and the ship recycling transparency initiative is is focused also on data and transparency but it's focused very much on that collaborative approach how do we learn from each other how do we stop the sort of discussions being Things need to be done better, pointing at the problem or, you know, focus on best practice. Those generic words which don't really mean very much by themselves, but allowing those involved in the initiative to discuss and collaborate on the nitty gritty. What does it take? What do we need to do different? And then, of course, there is the business model and the financial aspects that will need to change and evolve uh, to serve that across the industry. As you said, there's a gold standard group that are focused on doing it right and are willing to have the invest and, and increase costs perhaps or reduce reward in terms of the value of the vessel being achieved at the end of life, etc. But like Norden, like other ship owners involved in, in the Ship Recycling Transparency Initiative, they believe that this is right. And if it's the right thing to do, why wouldn't we do it? Is, is a quote um, from one of our ship owners, the China Navigation Company. And that's where I see the driver momentum coming and the realisation of change in parallel, probably, with what will become the implementation of the Hong Kong Convention. But I guess for an industry, why wait is, is the question that we pose. And there's, there's no need to wait to do the right things right. Why wait indeed. Uh, one of one of the issues, of course, is that as with most things in shipping, when you're dealing with assets of a lifespan of 20 years plus, you're never just dealing with changing something for the future. You're dealing with an existing fleet. You're dealing with historical legacy of issues, of course. I want to end by you know, giving you the flip side of my opening question, asking you about your optimism for the next five years. If you could change one thing, from here going forward, what's your priority? What would be your message to the industry if they could focus on just one thing? How do we improve things incrementally from here, this point forward? Um, Jennifer, perhaps I could start with you. 
what I would say is that we need to be open minded about what sustainable ship recycling could look like. Um, it doesn't mean that standards have to be lowered. It doesn't mean expectations have to be lowered either. I think it's about being open to the innovation that's currently happening. And certainly we've seen that innovation in the handful of cases that recycling facilities we've been working with uh, quite closely. Uh, and what we've seen is really bold. Um, in some cases, it's new or completely novel. But if that's proved over the longer term to be successful, it could reinvent the way the vast majority of ships are actually recycled. Um, and so it's that open-mindedness to change, both from the recyclers, but also from the, the wider industry. Wonderful. Christina, I'm going to put you on the spot. Change one thing to make the industry better in terms of uh, sustainable recycling. What do we do? Well, actually, um, in, to reiterate what uh, Jennifer just uh, mentioned, I think uh, transparency to a, a larger degree would help that because it's about being open-minded, but also being transparent about the different levels of sustainable ship recycling. The transparency would help uh, this diversity. I think. Excellent. Roger, wave your financiers, superheroes wand and change one thing. What is it? <laughs> I think for the actual industry itself, increased transparency and, and that cross-learning, learning from each other to, to raise the standards now and recognising that when it comes to standards, one size doesn't fit all. India has you know, a very sandy substrate, whereas, say, Bangladesh has a, a very muddy so substrate. So the, the solutions they can come up with are not going to work in both Bangladesh and India. And so they need to be looked at individually and tailored to. But then that cross-learning of information, of the techniques, the cutting techniques and training, and it, that needs to happen on a wider scale across the industry. So it gives... The late starters, in, in my view, a, a chance to catch up uh, and actually, as an industry, like raise the bar. Andrew, I'm going to give the final word to you. Give us a, a note of optimism. What do we change? Yeah, I think in addition to being transparent and willing to be accountable, I think you know the recognition that change is, is tough and it is about that collaboration, the learning and working together and don't be afraid to come to the table to learn from your peers of what you think is not possible actually is possible. Wonderful. Uh, Andrew, Jennifer, Roger and Christina, thank you very much for joining the Lois List podcast. Mm-hmm.